thanks for thanks for uh, having me here today. I uh, wasn't one hundred percent sure what everybody would be interested in, so what I decided I would do, uh, and because my primary focus is on dealing with land use approvals for for people who are planning to do things uh, with their with their land, I had assumed that what most of you would be interested in is what can you do? Uh, how can you expand your campsites? Uh, where can you put in a new camp campsite, and how does the Greenbelt legislation and the Greenbelt plan uh, affect you? I wasn't... Um, so what I did was I started off by uh, thinking that what I should do is give you a bit of an overview of the, the, um, uh, the Greenbelt, um, and then I would talk to you about its effect and its interaction with other planning instruments uh, in the province of Ontario. Uh, then I was going to drill down to the various components of the Greenbelt area, uh, the agricultural system and the natural system. Uh, we weren't going to spend a lot of time talking about the settlement areas because typically your camps are not in the settlement areas. Um, and then how those areas do or do not permit uh, your campsites to be located, expanded, whatever. Um, then uh, what I'm going to do is then talk about, well, what are the sorts of permissions you're going to need uh, we can talk about process if you don't know about that. I didn't actually include it in the, in the presentation, but uh, I know it well enough to be able to tell you. Unfortunately, I don't have a, um, any sort of um, diagram for that. And then I'm just going to talk to you a little bit about if you're going to go ahead and do something like that, who are the people you're going to need to work with. Um, what I'm not going to do is to deal with um, a great deal. A lot, of, a lot of what's necessary here is what the various municipalities have done to implement the plan. Uh, because I know that Don Sinclair is coming up right after me uh, to do that, and so he'll give you an example. I'm 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 anticipating of how at least East Gwillimbury has done it, and uh, we'll we'll give you a better sense of of how they do that. So, very very simply, um, the Greenbelt Plan is a plan that was um, put into place by an act called the Greenbelt uh, Plan Act, and it's a um, plan that interrelates and layers on top of other provincial land use plans, uh, such as the Oak Ridges Marine Conservation Plan, the Niagara Scarpment Plan, some of you may very well be uh, from, from area where the Niagara Scarpment Plan uh, applies. There's also a Parkway Belt uh, West Plan, probably doesn't apply to you. There's a Rouge, Ruth, uh, Rouge North Management Plan as well. And they each are implemented uh, and created by their own acts, okay? And each of them contains different um, land use designations, I, I guess you could call them, or permissions uh, attached to each of them. Um, what I don't know how well people can see this, but what we've got here is a map of the Greenbelt area in southern Ontario. And it's everything that is in the darker greens. The, the very, very light yellow uh, is uh, the area that is outside the Greenbelt plan. Um, but you'll see there are basically... Uh, three green colors running through there. There's the darkest green, and that is the Greenbelt uh, area. The, I, I can't, I don't know if you can even see, but the, um, this green color running along here is the Oak Ridges Moraine Plan, and the one that runs down here is the Niagara Scarpment Plan. Okay, and so what the Greenbelt Plan does is it establishes an area, it, uh, draws those little brown lines between the Oak Ridges Moraine areas, the Niagara Escarpment Plan areas, and the rest of the Greenbelt. The, um, I think I missed a page, did I? No? Um, 
What it does then is uh, it also interacts with the Places to Grow um, Act and its plan as well, which we'll, I'll show you a map of uh, right after that. But what it does is it says, these are the boundaries of the Green Belt area. If you're in it, you're covered by it. However, those boundaries um, are subject to local clarification. Uh, so when you're looking at any piece of land and you're right on the boundary, it's worthwhile looking uh, very, very carefully and maybe consulting with somebody to determine whether you really are in or out. And that also applies because um, when we go back to the map, you see there are the areas where you might be on the boundary between the Oak Ridge's Moraine Plan or the, uh, or the Niagara Escarpment Plan. And once again, those areas, those boundaries, are subject to uh, further clarification as well. And basically the concept um, is that if you're in the Green Belt area and outside the Oak Ridge and the Rain Plan or, and outside the Niagara Escarpment Plan, you're subject to these policies. If you're inside the Oak Ridge and the Rain area, you're subject to the Oak Ridge Oak Ridge Gizma Rain plan policies, and same thing with the Niagara Escarpment plan. Okay? There's, there can be differences in how the Oak Ridge Gizma Rain plan or the Niagara Escarpment plan would deal with your property uh, compared to the Green Belt plan. So it's important to know it precisely where you fit into those, two are, those three areas. And then, of course, ultimately, the municipal official plan uh, and its zoning bylaw are also very important because they can restrict and regulate to a greater degree than the, uh, uh, than the Green Belt Plan. Um, all right. The Places to Grow Plan uh, is, the, is the broader view of how development uh, should occur in Ontario. And basically, I'm simply showing you that the concept is development density will occur in the purple areas which are almost entirely outside of the Green Belt Plan. It's uh, authorized by the Green Belt Act of 2005. It generally applies to applications made after December 16, 2004. Uh, we lawyers love to um, fuss about exactly what applies when. There's a, there's a regulation that determines um, to which application, which of these uh, various policies apply to when. And so if you are dealing with situations like that, it's, it's important to be careful about the exact dates. It essentially identifies where urbanization should not occur. Its primary purpose is to protect areas that have been agricultural in nature for a very long time, as well as the natural heritage areas that run through there. Um, and obviously it interacts with both the Oak Ridge's Moraine Plan uh, and the Niagara Escarpment Plan primarily. What we have in the Green Belt Plan area is three subcategories or three areas. There is an agricultural system, there is a natural system, and there are settlement areas. Okay? And each of those have their own policies that apply to those areas. And then there are some overreaching policies that apply to all of the areas. That's the way the plan works. So the question is, where do you fit? Do you, are you in the agricultural system, the natural system, or the settlement area? Because the policies that would apply to you would be different in each of those. And we actually have to start backwards. We start with the settlement areas. And they're shown in brown in this map. They're basically all of the towns, villages, hamlets. Uh, that are already built up. The map shows where the settlement areas are supposed to be. And those are 
the settlement areas. This map then shows where the natural heritage systems are, and they're shown in dark green. And basically what we're saying is, those are now the heritage systems. And basically, the, the um, protected countryside is everything uh, that is outside of the brown and the dark green. Okay? It's, it's an exclusionary um, uh, approach to things. Now, the... Sorry, I'm rolling around here. Now, the agricultural system... Where am I here? Okay, here we go. Agricultural system it consists of three areas, sub-areas. There, the, there are two specialty crop areas. The, there's the Niagara tender fruit and grape area, the Holland barge, and then there are um, the prime agricultural areas, and then finally the rural areas. Okay? And the way it works is there are maps that show you where the Niagara tender fruit area, there's a map that shows you where the Holland marsh is located, then the prime agricultural areas are defined by the local municipality's official plans. So it's not actually in the Greenbelt Plan document itself. You can't find out exactly where the prime agricultural areas are by looking at the plan. And then finally, everything else outside of that is a rural area. Okay? And we're particularly concerned about rural areas because those are the places where it is most likely you will be able to locate. So here are the... Here are the two maps. That shows where the Niagara tender fruit area is. As you can imagine, it's down in Niagara. And the Holland Marsh, as you can imagine, is the Holland Marsh up around Newmarket. The policies that then apply to basically all of the land within the Green Belt um, is set out in, it's actually section 4.1.1.1 of, of the plan. And it provides that with the exception of certain exceptions, okay, specific exceptions, we'll come back to those, non-agricultural uses are not permitted in the specialty crop area, so Holland Marsh, Niagara, uh, tender fruit areas. They're not permitted within the prime agricultural areas, primarily defined through the, uh, the municipal official plans. Um, Within the, uh, within the Green Belt area. So basically it's saying you can't carry out non-agricultural uses in any of those specialty crop areas or in the prime agricultural areas. Okay? That's, it's a prohibition. That leaves, of course, the rural areas uh, as places where you do not have a prohibition against non-agricultural uses. And what they are is um, anything that is rural or official uh, open space within the Michel official plans. They're normally designated that way, and they're characterized by um, agricultural, but a mix of recreational and historic rural land uses. And the plan actually specifically identifies them as including recreational land uses, which is what your activities would be. Section 4.1 of the plan says very specifically the rural areas are intended to continue to, to accommodate a range of commercial, industrial, and other uses that serve the agricultural sectors. Okay? You probably don't do that. But it goes on to say there also, additionally, 
intended to support a range of recreational and tourism uses. And it sets out very specifically that this includes tourism-based accommodations and campgrounds. Okay? The plan itself does not define what a campground is. Okay? But you probably fit into the, either a tourism-based accommodation or a campground uh, type of um, uh, activity. And in the rural area, the very specific policies that apply say that if you're going to do new camp development or an expansion, it is permitted provided you can demonstrate a bunch of things. And they are, one, the use has got to be appropriate for that location in the rural area. That's a very broad concept, but it's generally a, a check to make sure, yeah, it makes sense to be here. The uh, type of water and sewer servicing is appropriate for that type of use. You've got to be adequately able to, to deal with it. Then there are two tests of whether or not there is a negative impact on key natural heritage features and key hydrologic features or functions. Uh, those are there's a very s uh, special s specific definitions that are contained in the plan. I'll come to them later on, but it, the point is you can't negatively impact them, and you can't negatively impact on biodiversity or the connectivity of the natural heritage system. So the idea is not only do we try and protect the... Um, not only does the plan attempt to protect the natural areas, it also is concerned about linkages to make sure that fauna, um, animals, uh, can move from natural area to natural area, okay? Even though they, um, uh, even though you may not actually be in a natural area. Negative impact is defined in the plan, and it's defined in the plan as having in regard to water, degrading surface or groundwater, okay, or hydrologic features. And as you can tell by some of these definitions, these are tests that you absolutely do need an expert to provide advice on uh, and to demonstrate and prove um, that they are not negatively impacting on these areas, okay? It talks about not negatively impacting fish habitats. Most of your campgrounds, I presume, will be located near bodies of water because recreational opportunities near water are probably necessary for most of your campgrounds to actually attract people. So you're going to be dealing, likely, with a fish habitat issue. Uh, and there is a very real possibility you're also going to be near some natural heritage features or areas. And they're talking here then about not only threatening the health and integrity of those features, but the functions, the ecological functions, it's a defined term in the plan, that those areas serve, okay? I'm introducing a definition of major recreational use to you because a major recreational use runs up against an additional set of criteria that you have to demonstrate. And the, a recreational use that is a major recreational use is one that requires large-scale modification of terrain or vegetation and probably includes large-scale buildings or structures. And they give some examples. A golf course and probably most important to you, serviced campgrounds. 
Okay? And service campgrounds obviously means both sewer uh, and, and water. Okay? That, is, that is within the plan an ex a, a given example of what a major recreational use is. Okay? Um, the, the test, once again, is a bit fuzzy because it simply says large-scale modification of terrain and large-scale buildings and structures. And so when we go in with an application for you, part of what we do is we make a determination. Do we think? Can we make the, the, the argument that you're not large-scale or the expansion you're doing is not large-scale? Oops. And then here's why it, it, it's important. Because within the rural areas, these policies apply. Uh, firstly, you can't have residential dwelling units except for uh, employees uh, for that particular, uh, uh, particular use. But then an application that establishes or expands a major recreational use in, in a natural heritage system must include a bunch of things, including uh, vegetarian, uh, vegetation, vegetarian, I don't know who typed that, but it's not vegetarian, uh, it's a vegetation enhancement plan. Um, uh, and you've got to show that it's the vegetation is sustaining. There's a whole bunch of policies here uh, talking about uh, how you, you deal with um, your, your, your vegetation, use of pesticides, uh, uh, drainage, um, and maximizing ecological value of the plantings you do carry out. Uh, you've got to show that you're putting into place a conservation plan. Once again, this is the sort of thing where you will need uh, somebody to put that together for you as part of your application. Um, and you've got to show that, for example, uh, structures um, for recreational uses, docks, walkways, uh, boardwalks, that sort of thing, um, uh, continue to permit uh, the continued use of, of those areas. Okay. Getting back then to, to, to water, uh, bodies of water that you're probably located on. Shoreline areas is a definition I'm introducing to you once again because, once again, you're probably going to have to deal with them. And they're, they're defined as being concentrations of existing or approved shoreline development that are zoned or designated in the municipal official plans. So, once again, it's important to look at what your local municipality has done in terms of, of, um, of zoning or designating them. Okay? And they apply essentially to all inland lakes. And if you're in a shoreline area, here are the policies you have to meet in addition to the, uh, the, the, the more general ones. Firstly, the municipality and the conservation authority um, have to ensure that it's integrated with the existing park and trails um, um, that, that are in place for that municipality. And that's part of their review process. They'll be looking to make sure that, uh, that that's the case. Um, the, the concept is the development should, as much as possible, enhance the ecological features and functions of those shoreline areas. And there is then introduced the concept that you must establish a vegetation protection zone of 30 meters along that shoreline. The concept is you shouldn't be building or doing anything in that 30 meters. You've got to increase or expand, okay? Increase or expand, not simply maintain, but increase or expand fish habitat in the littoral zone, which is basically the high to low 
um, watermarks. You're supposed to minimize erosion, sedimentation, and introducing things into the water. Uh, improve uh, efficiency of sewage disposal so that you don't um, put nutrient inputs into the lake. And you're supposed to work with your uh, landscaping to uh, try and enhance the uh, capability of native plants and, and vegetations to work uh, along that shoreline. All of that sounds rather, rather daunting. You're supposed to make it better is basically what that is saying. But the plan does go on to say um, that there is some ability for you to locate in those vegetation areas, um, 30 meters and in the littoral zones, because um, there's a recognition that that is not always, it's not always possible and practical to simply say you, you can't be there. The, the criteria here is to show that you meet all of the other requirements of the municipality or any other agency such as the Conservation Authority, and then show that the area uh, of the structure is being minimized within those areas. Okay, so it's a, it's a matter of demonstrating uh, to your local municipality or necessarily ultimately the, the, the Ontario Municipal Board that you're minimally impacting it as much as possible. So that was in a rural area where the concept of a recreational use is permitted. We're now going to talk about the natural systems areas. We're not going to talk about settlement areas because not really relevant to you. Uh, in a natural system, what we're dealing with are two concepts here, two subcategories, if you would, the natural heritage system and the water resource system. And the natural resource system is those areas of the protected country, countryside with the highest concentration of the most sensitive and significant natural features and functions. And those are shown in that map, as in the dark green, if you recall back. Two more concepts. We're running through this fairly quickly. I know it's hard to absorb all of this, but there's two concepts. With the, there, there are key natural heritage features, not system, okay, but features, uh, individual features that are called key natural heritage features and key hydrologic features that can be located in those natural systems. So where you have a significant habitat of endangered species or, or um, fish habitats or wetlands, um, very significant uh, valley lands, uh, those are all examples of special features that are not identified in the overall mapping that we looked at earlier that are of special significance. And they're important because they're referred to in some of the policies. Okay? And the question is, do you have any of those on your land where you want to carry out some of your expansions? Um, just a map again, reminding you where the dark green was. In the natural heritage systems, once again, because of the agricultural concept here, all agricultural uses are permitted. Non-agricultural uses, such as your recreational uh, campground uses, are not generally permitted. The only ones that would be permitted largely fall into a legally, non, uh, legally uh, conforming existing category. If you're there already, you get special treatment. Okay? Uh, firstly, if you are there, you can stay there. The plan says that. Secondly, and probably more interestingly, if you were there and you're outside of the settlement area, which I assume you're going to be, 
expansions of structures and uses or conversions uh, of those uses can be permitted subject to what I would call the big test. And the big test is, does it bring the use more into conformity with the Green Belt Plan? Okay, so the first step we do is we look at and we say, ha, how am I going to make the case to the local municipality, to the conservation authority, um, and ultimately, if necessary, the Ontario Municipal Board, that we're bringing this use more in into conformity with the Greenbelt Plan. And typically what you're looking at here is things that um, improve the, um, uh, that improve the, 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 the function, um, your, your shoreline areas, uh, vegetation, et cetera. So part of it is, is going to do some of that uh, as part of uh, our, our, our approach to why we should even be allowed to uh, do an expansion in the first place. So that, that's, that's what we're looking at. Um, there are two primary requirements on top of that key requirement. One, you're not going to need new municipal services. Okay? And secondly, you don't expand into key natural heritage features and key hydrologic features. That's why I gave you the definition earlier. Unless there's no alternative and it's limited in scope, and you keep it close to the existing structure. Okay, so it's not an absolute bar. But the key thing is you have to show how you are bringing the use more into conformity with the uh, Greenbelt Plan. What I'm going to do really quickly is cover off a bunch of other policies that apply to site alterations in the natural system. I'm going to cover them quickly because I do not believe they necessarily apply um, if you're doing an expansion, okay? Uh, there's an argument that says all you have to do is comply with these policies in order to do an expansion, and you don't have to do with this. There, um, um, and, and, and all of this stuff is significantly more detailed, and you would probably have some difficulty meeting this even if you can meet this. Um, but, it, but it includes, you know, such, such obligations as, you know, keeping at least 30% of the developable area in natural self-sustaining uh, vegetation, connecting, you know, connecting to uh, key natural heritage features, making sure your buildings don't occupy more than 25% of the uh, total developable area, things like that. Um, uh, here's the summary of, um, oh, here's the summary of that argument, which basically says, if you think you are capable of expansion because of the policy that says you can expand because you're bringing into more in conformity with the plan, then you don't have to meet those additional requirements for the natural um, heritage area. All right, so you, that's, that's an overview. I don't think you can absorb all of that in, in one sitting. Um, let, let's be honest. What do you need when you want to expand your campground? What do you need when you want to build a brand new campground? Well, the, the one thing you're going to have to get, and we're going to start actually at the bottom of this list, is you're going to have to get a building permit. Because uh, you can't build without a building permit. It's illegal. Uh, and for, for any structure that's bigger than, um, for any structure that's considered a structure, which is uh, basically um, 
uh, 100 square feet in size, 10 square meters. You need to get a building permit. You can't get a building permit unless if the municipality has a site plan uh, bylaw that applies to your land or a development permit requirement. You can't, so you'd need to get a development permit or a site plan approval. If it's zoning, um, if the zoning does not permit it, you would need either a minor variance uh, from the Committee of Adjustment or you would need a zoning bylaw amendment. Uh, and if the official plan, I don't know why it's disappeared off the list, but, and if the official plan doesn't permit it, you might need an official plan amendment, okay? And those are all applications you make initially to the, to the local municipality, in most cases, um, for processing. Um, it's circulated to all of the various agencies, including the Conservation Authority for, for review and comment. Uh, and in, par in making those applications, uh, where you are subject to the various Greenbelt uh, plan policies, I would suggest to you that it's incumbent upon you to present the case as well as you can right from the outset to demonstrate how you meet those policies. Uh, because if you can make that case up front well, your chances of being approved are much, much greater than if you put in um, an application that is perfunctory and, and inadequate. Um, that's that's what you're going to uh, uh, be required to do. Um, in Ontario, we have an appeal from refusals to grant official plan amendments, uh, refusals to grant uh, zoning bylaws, uh, refusals to grant minor variances and site plan approval or development permits to the Ontario Municipal Board. You've, you've heard about it. Uh, the Ontario Municipal Board, for those of you who don't know, is, a, is an administrative tribunal that is appointed by the Government of Ontario. Um, and its job is to take a close, uh, unbiased second look at planning, land use planning decisions that have been made by municipalities where there's a possibility uh, of, um, uh, of the municipality having made the wrong land use planning decision because of pressures from uh, other landowners uh, or for other reasons. Um, it's a process uh, that frankly is um, not inexpensive, um, but it does provide people with an opportunity to get the approvals that are necessary for whatever their proposed uh, plans are where there is opposition um, in their neighborhood for, for whatever reason, um, and you're unable to bring your, your local municipal council uh, or that initial decision maker on side. Or sometimes, uh, even if uh, the municipality makes the right decision, um, there is an appeal right on the part of other landowners in the area uh, to appeal to the Ontario Municipal Board. So even if you are successful, you may need to um, be at the Ontario Municipal Board because somebody else has said, no, you shouldn't be allowed to do your expansion or your new construction. Um, if you're looking at one of these, uh, what you probably need to do is to begin thinking about assembling a team of, of consultants that make sense for what you're doing. You're, if you're in the Green Belt Plan or the Oak Ridges Marine Conservation Area um, uh, Plan area, you're almost going, almost necessarily going to need to uh, at least speak to an environmental consultant to to look at the various issues that you're, you're addressing there, and there are subspecialties within uh, the environmental consultant area as well. 
Uh, you may need to uh, consult with the land use planner to provide you with at least the initial advice on what the official plan provides for, the uh, zoning bylaw by provides for, um, keeping in mind that they may be more restrictive and you may need to make those applications. And if we do ultimately have to go to the Ontario Municipal Board, it would be somebody we would ask to provide that, um, that evidence to the board to justify your application. You may need to engage various engineers uh, to deal with some of the issues uh, that you might have to face, whether they be uh, acoustic in terms of noise or uh, soils issues or traffic issues. Traffic issues are very real. Uh, or servicing issues if you uh, have to deal with uh, servicing. Uh, you, you probably need to engage a surveyor. You may or may not need to engage an architect. Uh, and um, what um, those of us who practice this sort of law uh, do is we provide an overall view, understanding to the approach, provide a bit of strategy about where you're going to go uh, and how you want to approach the various uh, entities that you're making your applications to, what of the policies do and don't apply, what, which of the laws do and do not apply, um, and then provide advocacy. Uh, advocate on your behalf either to municipal councils, uh, to municipal uh, and other commenting staff as necessary, and ultimately to, to provide the, um, the advice and the uh, representation at the Ontario Municipal Board uh, if that's ultimately necessary. And uh, what I'd like to say to you is think about this at the early uh, stages of your, or of your process. Spending the time and the effort and the money uh, to understand what your strengths and the weaknesses of your proposed expansion are up front is probably money well spent. It will um, firstly give you a realistic uh, sense of whether you're ultimately going to be successful, what your chances are. Secondly, it'll identify what the areas that you have to spend effort and money dealing with are going to be. May, it may help you identify other alternatives on your lands or other lands, okay? And um, frankly, it will also possibly keep you out of trouble in terms of presenting the wrong case um, up front that you then have to sort of fix and, and, and backtrack from, which does happen and, and is unfortunate, and if nothing else, delays your approval process uh, sometimes quite significantly. So that's, that's what um, looking uh, for a project team can help you with. Um, we were going to take questions, I think, take questions, I think, at the very end as opposed to right now. So I will leave it at that, but I'm happy to answer any questions when we're done. Thank you.